I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. deepening understanding of the biology of aging is giving rise to a growing list of companies that seek not only to address diseases of aging, but find ways to extend the healthy years of life. Longevity is a venture capital firm focused on seed and early stage investment in longevity startups. It's also built a community of like-minded companies to support startups, as well as an acceleration program for them. We spoke to Sergey Yakimov, founding partner of Longevity, about the firm's approach to investing, what constitutes a longevity play for it, and the network of companies it's assembled to help advance the startups it backs. Sergey, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. We're going to talk about the emerging area of geroscience, longevity, and its investment approach to backing biotechnology companies involved in longevity. Perhaps we can begin with the notion of longevity itself. There are people who believe there are limits to human life and that we won't see people living beyond 120 or so. There are others who believe, though, that through regenerative medicine, we'll be able to radically alter lifespans. What do you think is possible? Right. So I think there are many, there are many approaches of how to tackle it, uh, to be completely honest with you. And, and, and these essentially range from, you know, purely ethical questions, which have nothing to do with science. And that is, you know, should we live longer? Should we strive to live sort of, well, not forever, but significantly longer? And what are the all the you know ethical complications that would come with it and with longevity as as a phenomenon right on the and the in the uh, scale of the society and then there is a a scientific version of it where I would say that um, and and I think most of the most of the KOLs uh, keeping leaders in the longevity field will agree that in the next um, thirty to fifty years, which means that sort of you know some of the generations that are living now. We already will already experience it. We will reach uh, a point which uh, is like in the industry is called uh, longevity escape velocity, and that is essentially a point where we would be able to uh, reverse the aging process to an exact amount of years that we've lived. Right. So essentially, it's the point where we would be able to biologically stay at the same place, although the chronological age is kind of still counting. Right. So so the 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 overall understanding is that you know within within the next say fifty years we, we will be able to reach reach that point. Um, so so that would eventually uh, lead to living to one hundred twenty years, uh, which by the way is is not even a record now, right? So the the current record is I think one hundred twenty two point five, uh, and that was set by by Jean Clement, right? Um, a, a a French a French woman. 
um, who never actually adhered to any longevity practices. She, so she has been drinking and smoking and doing whatever for her for, for what? There's um, the secret. <laughs> <laughs> that that's maybe that's the secret right and by the way this is something that is now often referred to as longevity hedonism which basically means that you should you know ob ob obey some of the practices but then you should enjoy life in the uh, throughout throughout uh, you know living and, 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 and adhering to these practices and then there is a third um a third notion which um is a very pragmatic one and and that is the one, by the way, that that is mostly sort of adopted by, by venture capitalists, I think, and, and funds that that invest in the area. And that is looking at longevity not exactly through the prism of how much longer can we live, but rather how do we maintain a healthy human performance um, throughout a potentially longer lifespan, or at least maintain it throughout you know a, a feasible feasible number of years, uh, even, you know, the lifespan that we have now. So it's essentially how do we keep us fully functional and without significant physical and mental deterioration, right? And that is by far actually more important than just living, uh, living a longer life, right? Which doesn't mean quantity, doesn't mean quality. So that, that's still, the, these, these are essentially the three, the three approaches of, of looking at it, right? So um, it's a fairly complicated question, to be honest with you. There are a handful of longevity-focused venture funds, although you often see them making investments that more conventional biotech investors might make. If you cure someone's cancer, you're going to extend their life. For that matter, you can invest in airbags and extend people's lives, but I wouldn't say that's a longevity play. How do you define what constitutes an investment for longevity? And that is a good question. So again, as a venture capitalist, we are uh, fairly pragmatic, which means that if you're looking at the way that the venture funds are structured, really, um, you are looking at a certain investment horizon. Uh, and that investment horizon essentially dictates um, what is the time that you would spend with the company, that you would spend with the deal before you're actually able to exit and to make a multiplier because venture funds are at the end of the day for profit entities. Now that said, longevity focused venture funds, which are fairly few, and I'm talking the ones that really back the due diligence power to assess sort of early stage longevity tech, which is super non-trivial exercise. So the longevity funds are very ideologically driven. So that means um, we always, when we invest, we always look at the deals through the prism of, are we actually advancing? So are we, are we actually advancing the science? Are we actually advancing the field? Are we actually contributed to the next, contributing to the next big thing in our industry so that it essentially wears in more, more uh, outside investors and, and more capital and sort of more, more interest. So realistically, if if you take into account sort of the first point, which is the investment horizon, um, a VC would look at longevity uh, through the age-related diseases uh, prism, where in our case, we're, we're essentially segmenting our investment focus across two uh, very distinct verticals, where the first vertical is therapeutics, or you may call it drugs. And this is where we look at disease-modifying therapies, 
uh, and disease modifying is a very important term here, um, in specific disease areas where we don't look at cancer holistically, for example, because what well, cancer or oncology, whatever you want to call it, is a super wide field. We rather look at a specific area of oncology, which in our case is immune oncology. We look at neurodegenerative diseases, specifically Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, uh, potentially disease modifying therapies, as well as several more specific uh, technological families that are normally associated with, with the aging research. In our case, that is cell rejuvenation and epigenetic reprogramming. And epigenetic reprogramming is something that I find, I think, uh, I'm myself most fascinated by. Uh, and then the second pillar, the second vertical that we have is uh, what you might call, for the simplicity's sake, non-therapeutics. And this is where we're looking at not drugs, but rather very early screening methods and very early detection methods for age-related diseases. So essentially super early, again, cancer diagnostics, super early neurodegenerative disease diagnostics, etc. The reason why this is happening is because as a VC, you sort of have... I would say like three horizons of events where the closest one and the medium one is something that you invest in. And the third one, which is essentially, you know, 15, 20 years away type of technologies is something that you observe and the something that you wait to be crystallized in and, and translated from fundamental science essentially into, um, into specific approaches that, that will be then investable, uh, investable by VCs. Um, if you want a, um, a metaphor here, so the, I think the most, and I just came up with it, the most um, workable metaphor here would be like when you're looking at the house, right? Um, you look at the house holistically, but then when you're building a house, you are, you know, looking at different sorts of bricks and different sorts of communications and pipes and what's so not, right? So everything that the house is built from. So the same thing happens here. When you look at age-related diseases, you essentially acknowledge that the phenomenon of longevity is a compilation of so many factors that did not go wrong or that were prevented from going wrong. And this is why you essentially segment and, uh, and uh, yeah, basically drop it down to specific disease areas uh, the way we do it in the fund. It was a lengthy answer, but I hope I answered <laughs> There's a growing cluster of longevity-focused company in the Baltics where your fund is very present. Are you focused on global geography or are you focused in looking for companies in that area? And being there, do you have uh, unusual insight into the activity that's going on there? Um, so to be completely frank, our footprint with Baltics is, is a fairly um, – it's a fairly not straightforward one. So um, we have three partners in the fund and three co-founders in the fund. Um, and uh, we indeed, all of us three were born and grew up in Latvia. Uh, so, so this is where sort of, you know, a significant part of our operations is. The fund though um, is not specifically focused around Baltics at all. Um, it has a, an international mandate which means that most of, all the, uh, of our deal flow actually comes from U.S., so from the major uh, academic centers in U.S. Um, I'd say 30% of our deal flow actually comes from EU. Um, the first deal we will be doing in the Baltics, most probably, is uh, the round that we're currently leading. It's not yet completed. 
Um, and I cannot name the company yet, but it is one Estonian company uh, that is uh, working specifically in the field of uh, AI and skin aging processes. So that will be the first deal that we will complete um, hopefully in the next few months in the Baltic region. But so far it was mostly US and sort of the EU5 uh, type of Europe, right? You're a, a small fund, $35 million, focused on seed and early stage investments. In the world of biotech, that's not a lot of money, but it seems to me you're doing some things to leverage that. I'm thinking here of the network you've assembled. How formal a network is this and how do you leverage it to advance the investments you make? So we are by far... Uh, a, a very non-trivial entity, uh, if, if you think about it. So uh, all of us three, we, we had our, our, our different career paths, essentially, where one of our partners uh, has, has pursued a, a very sort of high-level career in, in, in professional finance and in banking prior to actually starting to invest in, in longevity and early biotech. Uh, the other partner of ours has been a... a um, Business angel with one of the with, with several very well known longevity companies as 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 we look at it today. Myself, I was a founder in biotech and pharma all my life, pretty much, which is not long. I mean, I'm thirty years old, but uh, still, I have had some career. So the thing is, the found uh, the fund uh, for us was a very organic development uh, where we actually came together, we realized that there is tremendous deal flow around us and there are numerous opportunities to support groundbreaking science. Um, and we decided to institutionalize our networks essentially. So the way we have built our fund, and, and you're right, it's a 35 mil um, investment vehicle, uh, which is, well, not, not a lot by biotech standards. We have built our fund around our advisory board. So our advisory board, which is chaired by Alex Javoronkov, who is the founder of Ancilico Medicine, is, is pretty much the number one guy in AA for drug discovery now, globally. Um, the, the advisory board is chaired by Alex, but it also has another sort of eight um, splendid individuals, uh, each each um, KOL in their in their own right, and it includes uh, the likes of Mike Levitt, for example, the Nobel Prize winner in chemistry out of Stanford, Matt Caberwin, um, a, a uh, professor out of the University of Washington, who is pretty much the number one person in the world in animal aging processes, C-level uh, pharma executives and former C-level pharma executives, et cetera. So we've essentially structured our network in a way that we put it to use in the fund. And a lot of our processes are... Um, essentially wrapped around how we interact with our advisory board, how our advisory board refers deals to us, uh, how we get allocations with the deals that we like, and how do we spot the very, the most promising, essentially, tech uh, at the very moment when it's getting out of the research center, right? So at the very moment of spinoff actually happening, how do we spot it? How do we identify it? How do we evaluate it? using both our internal resource, which is essentially the investment teams that they have, but also our advisory board. Uh, and then how do we get you know, to, to know the founders and how do we get there early? So um, it's really not the question of the size of the fund, to be completely honest. Uh, in early stage biotech and specifically longevity, which is the laser focused 
part of biotech, it all comes down to your ability to do early stage science due diligence. And if you're able to do it, sort of if you pack the, the intellectual firepower, you'll be good to go. You're a seed and early stage fund, and I imagine take a long-term view on investments, but how do you think about exit strategies and will you make investments without having a clear exit in mind? Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. So part of it has to do with the fact that when we make investments, we really try to make sure that we contribute to the field. And I'm not saying this because I want to look good, right? Or, or sound good or sound noble. We actually do it, which means that, and most of the uh, vast majority of the, of the longevity focused funds do it. So it's not only about when do you exit, it's about, are we actually doing something good for the field? Are we popularizing it? Are we making it grow, right? So that's the first point. The second point, um, there is um, this belief that when you invest in pharma, specifically in early drugs, your investment horizon and your exit horizon should be like 10 plus years, right? Because everyone knows that, you know, a drug to market time is, is 10 years if we're talking about sort of a null compound, if it's something repurposed, it's faster, but still it's, it's years sometimes decades. It's not exactly the case with seed funds still, because uh, when, when we invest, we come in, uh, well, seed, pre-seed, it doesn't really apply to therapeutics. We come, at, uh, come in at preclinical stage. So we normally join the companies in therapeutics when they have completed uh, their first preclinical work packages. So uh, they have their first animal models that they have done and they're preparing for their first, let's say, interact meeting or a pre-IND meeting or even the IND meeting already to enable them to go into sort of human clinical trials. Now, from that point on, your logic as a seed fund is essentially staying with the company till um, at least the first major value inflation event. And that value inflation event is, of course, the IND submission and the IND approval. Now, after this, if your time horizon and if your investment horizon allows, you can stay till the next value inflation event. Uh, and that is completion of phase one clinical trials, which is your you know, safety and toxicity, essentially. So this is where uh, a seed fund, um, a, a well-positioned seed fund, provided that the entry point was well-chosen in the preclinical stage, would have all the capacity to exit because at this point of time, the valuation has already multiplied, you know, 20, 25, something 30 times. Um, and the company has obtained clinical data, preclinical and clinical data from phase one that makes it interesting and makes it appealing uh, to large institutional investors or venture arms of pharma, uh, where smaller funds would actually exit through a secondary transaction, right? So we don't really wait for, um, for a liquidity event company, why the liquidity event happening? Um, there is practice of exiting through secondaries, uh, which is actually much more common than that. In non-therapeutics, it's a bit easier. So in, in non-therapeutics and early diagnostics, the company can get acquired in three years, four years, which is our investment horizon. And that's totally fine. And that would just mean that we were right with our due diligence. Given that you don't have the war chest to fund future rounds for a company as it grows. How do you think about, in your investment decision, the ability to attract larger investors behind you? This, this answer has, has two, two parts to it. So 
at the point where we invest, um, we actually prefer to follow the rounds. We, we Sometimes we lead, but normally we prefer to follow a, a strong lead. We do our own due diligence, but following following here is easier. All right. Uh, that sort of enables us sometimes to already join the company, which is which is led by by the big investor that sort of packs more more dry powder to support the company further. Now ourselves, we also have the possibility to support the company in the next round uh, and chip in with with more liquidity. So our policy is normally to um, for the initial investments, sort of the first the first investment with the company, we will do uh, from half a million to one point five million tickets. And which is normally again done in, in a co-investment in a co-investment pool with the other funds, um, and then we can follow on with another two point three uh, up to two point five actually a million in the next rounds if that's needed if we feel that this this is in line with our capital deployment strategy, uh, etc. Now, as for the next rounds, we actually have a splendid network of VCs that invest in earlier stages. We're, we're, we're kind of unique with our positioning here. So we, we kind of share the focus of the bigger VCs, uh, so, such as Longevity, Longevity Vision Fund, for example, or Bold Capital that are heavily, or Apollo Health Ventures, for example, that are heavily into sort of the longevity narrative. But these are 100 plus million funds. So they invest a bit later on. Um, we know them really well. So we can actually pass the deal on to this network of ours. Uh, after we have invested earlier and supported the company earlier. Um, that being said, we would always also deploy our advisory board resource, which means you know when, when, when you're in early stage biotech fund, uh, what you should be concerned about is not whether you are able to transfer the liquidity you know, to, to the company where you know, there's, there are plenty of funds that, that have the money, but rather what is the added value? Of your fund, right, and and of you being a shareholder or joining as a shareholder, and this is where again our advisory board and our network helps tremendously. I'd like to run through a few investments Longevity has made, and have you talk about your thinking behind the investments? As I understand it, the fund was created with monies generated through an exit its founders made in the cloud platform, Deep Longevity. I, I thought we could start there. What is Deep Longevity and what was the thinking behind that investment? So so there are several investments that, that were done prior to the fund, right? So there are several investments that were essentially done by the, by the team that have established, uh, has established um, Longevity um, afterwards. But several investments such as in Silico, for example, and Deep Longevity, uh, these were done prior to the fund existing as a separable, separable legal entity as, as, a, as an investment vehicle. So uh, on deep longevity specifically, it is not entirely true that, that the fund was essentially established with the, you know, using the funds from, from that exit, um, uh, not only. Um, and, and then, of course, the fund is, uh, the fund follows the uh, sort of the, the, the private close-ended capital model where we have LPs. Right. So some of the funds are, of course, committed by the partners, but the, the majority of funds are actually is actually coming from LPs. That said, um, Deep Longevity is uh, a company that is uh, designing and, and deploying in various industries now what you call aging clocks. Um, and these are AI algorithms that by looking at a set of uh, phenotypic biomarkers, uh, a set of blood biomarkers can essentially estimate 
uh, your chronological age, your biological age, and help you track um, all sorts of all sorts of aging processes um, based on these based on these data points that you feed in. Right. So that that's the notion. That's the notion behind deep longevity. Um, yeah, if 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 I answer it, but but aging clocks is is, is a is now a deep longevity has sort of started it, but aging clocks is now like a whole separate niche of the longevity industry on the, and, and the longevity tech. So it, it has grown rapidly, actually. You, you mentioned Alex earlier. You're an investor in, in silico medicines and AI drug discovery platform. What makes this a longevity play, and, and what was your thinking behind this investment? It might it might not seem obvious what makes it the longevity play. I think it makes in silico is it like a one hundred percent longevity play, and here's why. So back in the days, like six years ago, uh, five years ago, um, using AI for drug discovery was basically considered nonsense or or not doable or you know sci-fi by pharmaceutical companies um, because the, the drug discovery process. Um, was done, you know, in vitro in the lab, and then you proceed into in vivo, preclinical, et cetera, et cetera. So you would you would essentially you would essentially um, arrive at your molecule candidate in the lab, right? Using the very old school sort of very analog, if you wish, uh, process. Now the basic pitch behind AI for drug discovery was that you can actually leverage machine learning, uh, you can leverage uh, generative adversarial networks, GANs. Um, and you can leverage data uh, in order to find molecule candidates um, for for specific targets uh, much faster. Uh, and and by saying much faster, uh, I, I I say I mean magnitudes faster. Uh, where you know, as opposed to two years in a lab um, spent by a pharmaceutical company, we would do the same thing in thirty days, and that is a tremendous cost cut for a pharmaceutical company. Um, and tremendous de-risking, of course, activity as well. So, and Silico back in the days was essentially out there um, going into the market with that with that specific pitch. Now, five years passed, and Silico has grown now grown into a pretty much full-scale AI-driven pharmaceutical company on its own because they are now um, spinning out their own molecules and and getting them into preclinical and hopefully clinical trials. Um, where they have their own pipeline, as well as they have a separate service division where they're selling these services to big pharmaceutical companies, right? So this adoption happens super fast. Now, the reason why this is a longevity play is because when we are looking at age-related diseases and we're looking at fast pivoting, fast repurposing of the existing drugs and and fast identification of potentially promising small molecules, um, we are by default which is needed to combat these uh, and or, or at least find candidates to combat these age-related diseases, we are by default not talking about analog processes, which would take two years each, right? We need a rapid sort of pivoting and rapid identification mechanism, which would allow us to leverage data and, and create these molecules, molecule candidates really fast. And this is what AI for drug discovery does. So essentially it's a immensely useful tool to uh, iterate and to find these potential treatments for age-related diseases much faster. And, and, and as, I, as I already said, I mean, in this case, you're essentially looking at age, aging as, as a house, which is full of pricks, 
right? And these bricks are, uh, well, these, you know, onco risks, neurodegenerative risks, uh, all sort of, uh, you know, metabolic risks, et cetera, et cetera. And all of these you need to tackle. Um, and AI for drug discovery helps that, helps, helps find candidates faster. You've also invested in Longenesis. What is Longenesis and how does that fit in with your investment approach? So Longenesis is actually um, a bit of a different story. Uh, Longenesis was, um, it is now a portfolio company of the fund. Longenesis was initially co-founded by myself, uh, Gary, one of our partners in the fund, and in Silico Medicine as one of the co-founders, one of the corporate co-founders. So Longenesis is essentially a data company, which has designed a way of how to further shorten the drug to market time um, for, for big pharma companies. So if Insilico is essentially shortening the discovery part of it, where they're essentially doing something that took two years in, in 30 days, or like in a month, Longenesis helps pharmaceutical companies in a super compliant way without compromising any data regulations to identify patients in, in various clinical centers around the world faster. So essentially assemble cohorts for different phases of clinical trials faster and engage these patients, enroll these patients into clinical trials in a fully digital manner. Which means that essentially Longenesis built its own ecosystem, which consists of two products. Uh, one is called Longenesis Curator. The other one is called Longenesis Engage, where the first one helps to compliantly identify and discover patients where study sponsors can pretty much in few clicks understand where the patients are, like where potential cohorts of patients uh, can be assembled for a specific clinical trial. And then the second one helps to onboard them fully digitally with consent management, with the ability to generate real world data, et cetera, et cetera, on the hospital level. So on the, on the clinical investigator level. Why is this important? Because if you look at um, essentially the, the budget and the time distribution in clinical trials, um, 30% of clinical trial time and budget is taken by uh, sometimes even up to, up to 40%. It's taken by finding and recruiting patients. It's not the clinical trial itself. It's rather understanding where these people are and how, how to get them into a clinical study and how to make them motivated. So how to increase your so-called retention rate. So on Genesis is, is doing this exactly. Uh, the company is now three years old. Uh, and it has grown into working with several governments. Uh, and, and I mean, sort of these big nationwide uh, data, um, sometimes genetic data initiatives and, and multiple big pharma companies. Right? So it's now, it's now done projects across 10 disease domains, has empowered more than 400,000 patients and enrolled 400,000 patients, um, et cetera. So that, that's pretty much one genesis uh, in a nutshell. I have, of course, stepped down, uh, stepped down as, 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 a, as a manager from the company. So it now has sort of professional uh, industrial lead. But yeah, that's, that's the story. We basically co-founded it back in the days. As you think about the longevity space, what do you think it'll take to attract mainstream investors to invest not just in AI or cancer-focused companies, but companies that are truly focused on radical life extension and extension of healthy living? Several things, I think. Um, Where the first one is maybe less obvious, and that is um, us being able to translate um, this longevity language uh, into a language that would be understandable and appealing 
for investors from from the other from other areas of biotech or even uh, investors that are that don't come from biotech at all that come from you know other other uh, industries fintech or, or 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 other other areas of life sciences for example so that's that's the first part of it uh, the second part of it is of course uh, successes right so the next big thing always helps funding finding and funding and then Telling about funding and finding this big thing um, always helps to lure in more capital, more um, forward-thinking people and, and fund managers. And that is why longevity funds are always looking at the potential impact that their investments will make. Because if it's, if, if it's a success, it will be a success for the whole industry, not just because the company has succeeded, but because the industry has now another uh, successful case of, of a company, you know, exiting hugely or, or, or achieving, you know, tremendous clinical success. Uh, and, and normally the, the, the exit part would, would come along with it. So, so these are these two things. And the interesting part of it, by the way, is what we see in the fund, because with some of the LPs that we have in the fund, their primary reason for joining it as an investor is essentially to understand the longevity field and to essentially work with our team to become more versed into well, what ha what's happening in longevity, what are the trends, what is the investment logic, that sort of thing. So sometimes funds uh, and part fund participation is a perfect educational tool for the investors from, from elsewhere, from, from, different, uh, from different industries. Um, which is which is kind of kind of interesting, um, I think. Sergey Yakimov, partner with Longevity. Sergey, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week. Subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it. <laughs>